Tamariya, welcome to First Up. It is Ra Pare, that's Thursday, the 8th of September. Kornathan Rarere Aho. Coming up, we asked Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson if the government will apologise to the women wrongly accused of breaking lockdown rules and plunging Northland into lockdown. Rugby legend Matua Mats Parkinson discusses his journey of te reo as we look forward to Te Wiki o Te reo Māori. And regional council workers are saying they are sick of being paid less because they don't live in a big city. It was more expensive for us to buy a property here than it was in Canterbury. I was like, why are the wages less? But there seem to be, we're in the region, so we don't pay as much mentality. And I think that that needs to change. Maria, welcome to First Up. It's Nathan Rarere. Uh, we head over to the UK now. It's a pretty exciting time. Liz Trust begins her new job and sets up her cabinet and tackles major energy issues. And I asked our correspondent, Henry Riley, about those new cabinet positions. You know, who's in and who's out? Yeah, so we expected the cabinet appointments last night when she made her speech on the steps of Downing Street. And actually, they all came through last night. So she was very quick to appoint her top team. There was no sort of hanging around. The most important appointment is arguably her health secretary. This is the deputy prime minister, Dr. Therese Coffey. And she is a very long term ally of Liz Trust. They've been personal friends for ages. And she was on the media around this morning, Nathan. And she got interrupted during one of her interviews by a Dr. Dre alarm going off during the middle of the interview. <laughs> Uh, so we know that the new health secretary is a big fan of Dr. Dre. Uh, there's also a photo going around of her where she looks um, at you. She's been at a party and she's got a massive sort of Cuban cigar in one hand and a glass of champagne in the other. So she's been sort of mocked for that in a way. And she's embracing it, to be fair, in a good humoured way. Um, the other most important appointment is the chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng. Now, he was widely rumoured to be the chancellor. Now, the chancellor is an important position in any government, obviously, with responsibility for the nation's finances. But in particular, with the level of inflation we've got in the UK, with the cost of living crisis we've got, this perhaps is more important than it ever has been. And the most, uh, the other important office of state, or the two of them, are the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary. The Foreign Secretary is a man called James Cleverly. He was the Interim Education Secretary, a former chairman of the party, very close with Liz Truss. And then Suella Braverman is the new Home Secretary, and she's raised a few eyebrows. She's considered to be very right-wing. She's considered to be almost a bit to the right of Pretty Patel, who was our previous Home Secretary. And from a sort of stylistic point of view, the four great offices of state, for the first time ever, there is not a white man in those offices. You've got two women and a two ethnic minorities. So from that point of view, that's been celebrated. And just the other one I'll raise to you as well, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is a bit of a pantomime villain in the UK. He's been appointed as the business secretary, which has raised quite a few eyebrows. So he's been promoted. Yes, he does. He looks like he's straight out of one of those old movies, doesn't he, with the old the coats. And I imagine he always he sleeps in a top hat. Hey, um, so the cabinet has been named. What does that do for, I guess, the British pound? You know, that's something you trade on, you hang your hat on. What, what have, uh, How's that reacted on the world markets? Well, when Liz Truss was appointed yesterday, we actually had a bit of an economic bounce and everyone was saying, oh, this is great. But the news today has actually totally gone against that. Um, we've had some pretty negative news with regards to the pound. It's plummeted to its lowest level against the dollar since, wait for this, 1985. Now, you remember who was in power in 1985. That was when we had our first female prime minister, uh, Margaret Thatcher. 
who is Liz Truss's hero. So we've reached a historic low level. Sterling fell by 0.64%, so more than half, way over, and more than half a percentage point. Just now $1.145 this afternoon. That level hasn't been seen, as I say, in 37 years. The governor of the Bank of England, who ultimately have the sort of brief for the finances, he they've been meeting the chancellor today, who I referenced, Kwasi Kwarteng, to try and speak about economic measures, to try and speak about how we can uh, get the pound back at a strong level. But this is very worrying news. The pound has been very high in you know previous years, pre-Brexit against the dollar and against the euro. We've seen that started to slip in recent years, but there was a, a thought that that would perhaps be temporary. But this 37-year uh, low against the dollar is very concerning for, for the economy at the moment. And, uh, you know, the first thing that this chancellor is going to have to get cracking on with when he uh, when he really gets stuck into his role. I, I know that a, a big concern for a lot of the uh, English public is the, the energy bills. And I think I saw uh, an MP on a morning TV show saying, oh, it's fine. Just just put, you know, some reflective foil behind your heater and that'll warm your house and move the chairs away from it. That's that's what we did. Uh, but that, that obviously leads to a bit of a clash. Tell me about the clash about over-energy bills with Liz Truss and, and Keir Starmer. Yeah, you're right. You were referring to a clip from a lady called Edwina Curry, who was a former minister uh, ages ago, very strong conservative. And she was saying, you know, you need to move your sofa away so you don't heat your sofa and you heat your room and put yes. a bit of tinfoil behind. And the host, who is known as the money-saving expert in the UK, had his head in his hands saying, this is just crazy. Like, this, <laughs> this is not the most important thing going on. Like, we're not talking about, a, you know, a few people going cold. We're talking about people who literally can't put their heating on at all. But anyway, that's by the by. And um, as you referenced, it was Liz Truss's first PMQ today, Prime Minister's questions. There were a lot of concerns that perhaps, I mean, if you've ever seen any of Liz Truss's deliveries, Nathan, she's considered to be quite wooden. She's very matter of fact, very to the point. And there was a worry that, you know, whatever you thought of Boris Johnson, he was a very good speaker in some ways, in the sense that he could hold an audience. He was quite funny in some ways and quite bombastic, whereas Liz Truss is totally the opposite of that. And there was a worry that she might not perform. But she's widely regarded to have had a good prime minister's questions in terms of actually how she performed rather than what she had to say. Now, in terms of what she had to say, the Labour Party and various sections of the UK media were very critical. You know, we've been hearing about this cost of living plan that's due to happen. Uh, we now know it was rumoured to be on Thursday. We now have that confirmed. So tomorrow in the UK, we will have a plan from Liz Truss on how to tackle the energy crisis. She says it's going to be immediate action. What we think is going to happen is there's going to be a freeze on the energy price cap with the report session the policy could go up to £150 billion. So it's not a sort of small package. We thought it might be about £120 billion, but they've, they've whacked another £30 billion on that. So £150 billion, which to put it in perspective is nearly double what the furlough program in the UK costs. So this is a huge package of measures from someone who is, you know, describes herself as a very fiscally conservative person. She says she wants to reduce public spending and wants to implement tax cuts. Well, based on this plan that we're expecting tomorrow, it seems like actually she may be diverting from her economic conservative roots. Um, Henry, just before I let you go, uh, Chelsea Football Club are one month into the season. They've just set a record for how much money that they've spent in the transfer window, and now they've gone and what fired the manager? Why? Yeah, incredible. So Thomas Tuchel has been a very successful manager there. This is a man who won the Champions League, which is probably the most successful 
uh, and high-profile football competition you can actually win uh, as a UK club. He came in, you know, was very sort of no-nonsense, people liking him to other German managers uh, in the Premier League. They've just bought various players. You know, one example is a guy called Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, who used to play for Arsenal, my club, so I was a bit gutted to see him uh, sign for Chelsea. But they've spent all this money in the transfer window. They've had numerous new signings coming through. And they've now decided to sack their manager, which many people are raising eyebrows. The transfer window shut on the 1st of September. So it's only been shut six days. And they've now decided to sack their manager off the back of some poor results away from home. But uh, last night, they lost to Dinamo Zagreb in the European competition as well, which uh, frustrated many Chelsea fans. But it really is a shock decision. And um, many people at the start of the season would not have had Thomas Tuchel on high odds to be the first Premier League manager sacked. It's come as a massive surprise. And has thank you very much, Henry Riley. It's 13 past five. You're listening to First Up on RNZ National with me, Mr Jazz Voice, Nathan Rarity. Uh, very keen for your feedback this morning. Now, you heard there, uh, when I was talking to Henry, uh, the, the tips from uh, the, the former MP saying things like, move your couch away from your heater. Put that silver paper behind it. And, I mean, look, obviously we're going through our own uh, cold snap here at the moment, particularly there in the Deep South. But I just wanted to know, what what's your... Do you have one of those ye oldy uh, energy-saving tips or a heating tips? I'll give you my one. Downstairs in the you know the uh, in the laundry bit there where we've got a, one of those frosted windows. It gets very cold because it's got the aluminium joinery, right? So they get through. Bubble wrap behind it. Just some bubble wrap. It's really good. It keeps therm- you know keeps a bit thermal. We can't really see it from the outside. It's very nice, and it works. Uh, two one oh one. If you got one too, that's what I'm putting on the table. It'll, this is going to be like that Texas Hold'em tournament. Try and beat my energy saving tip. That's my ye oldie one. Uh, the bubble wrap. Can you beat it? Two one oh one. Or you can email us first up at rnz.co.nz. We were in the UK. Let's go to uh, mainland Europe now. As uh, Dr. Anita Purcell Sherland joins us from Sweden. Kia ora, how are you? Fine, thank you, Kiora. Uh, let's start with this Italian news. Tell me about this far-right politician's speech and, and why has it upset so many people? Well, basically, um, he belongs, this politician, Alessio Di Giulio, he belongs to a far-right um, political party called The League, and um, he's a, he's a councillor in Florence, and what he did was he filmed a video of himself walking up to a Roma woman and speaking to the camera saying, vote for The League on the 25th of September. Itali- Italy is going to have general elections later on this month, and he basically said, if you vote for The League, you'll never see her again. Now, The League is part of a three-way coalition, including its far-right counterpart, Brothers of Italy, and former Italian Prime Minister Silvio Berlusconi's Forza Italia party, which is forecast to win the elections. Now, Di Giulio's video was condemned by the centre-left Democratic Party, and the mayor of Florence accused the far-right politician of racism, which Di Giulio denies, saying he has a Nigerian girlfriend and that he wanted to denounce the crime of begging in the country. Okay, uh, that's horrible. Um, in four days, you know, the, the country you live in, Sweden, goes to the polls. How's it looking there? Well, the elections are described as um, being the country's most critical elections in years, and the elections are pivotal as it's predicted that a far-right populist party with neo-Nazi roots is likely to become the second biggest party. Now, opinion polls ahead of September 11 elections show that the left bloc, led by the centre-left Social Democrats, the Greens, the far-left or formerly Communist Party and the Centre Party, running neck and 
neck with the right-wing bloc of the centre-right moderates, the Liberals and Christian Democrats. However, recent polls show that the far-right Sweden Democrat Party is running ahead of the established moderates. Now, Sweden deals with several crises such as soaring inflation and energy costs as well as um, increasing gang violence. Predicting um, which bloc will win will be difficult because on the right, the Liberals have ruled out backing a government that includes the far-right Sweden Democrats, who in turn have demanded for more political influence. And on the left, the far left is demanding a seat in government, and the centre party has ruled out supporting a cabinet that includes the left or negotiating budgets with them. So it's a bit of a mess at the moment, and that that's just before the elections. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to speak to you next week and, and find out uh, what's happened there. Let's, let's go uh, to Albania. Why has Albania cut ties with Iran? Well, Albanian Prime Minister Edi Rama has accused Iran of launching a cyber attack and Iranian diplomats and embassy staff have been ordered to leave uh, within 24 hours. Now, the Albanian government said the attack in July on Albanian institutions threatened to paralyze public services, erase digital systems and hack into state records, steal government intranet electronic commu uh, communications and basically stir chaos and insecurity in the country. Now, relations between Tirana and Tehran have been under strain for several years. In 2013, Albania resettled members of the People's Mujahideen of Iran militant group, which advocates for the overthrow of the Iranian government. And, um, and also, Albania welcomed the assassination of Iranian General Qasem Soleimani in the US drone strike in 2020. Iran's um, supreme leader called Albania, a small but uh, evil European country harboring Americans and traitors against Iran. Okay, well, that doesn't sound like they're going to be friends soon. Let's go to the Netherlands. I've been to this place. It's beautiful, Harlem. But why, why is the city of Harlem banning ads for meat? Well, basically, um, it's it, they're, they're trying to, because of the food's um, impact on, on climate change, and it's thought to be the first um, such move um, by a city, and Harlem will enforce the ban from 2024. Now, the motion, which was drafted by a green political party, has faced opposition from the meat sector and some who say it stifles free speech, as well as from the political right. Uh, the meat industry, some law experts and the political right parties criticise the ban as going too far in telling people what's best for them. According to Statistics Netherlands, about 95% of the people eat meat, but more than half don't, do, uh, don't eat meat every day. Oh, that's interesting. I, I ate one of the most challenging things I've ever eaten there. It's called a roll mop. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't quite prepared for how, how salty <laughs> it, it would be. I, I thought it was something entirely different. And, you know, when you take a bite of something and then you're thinking, I'm going to be rude if it falls out of my mouth. So you just nod and you smile and hope they turn around. That's, that's what I had there, Anita. Hey, oh, um, yeah. thank, thank you very much for your time. We'll catch up with you next week, too, after the back of the Swedish elections. There she is. Uh, we speak to her every week, Dr. Anita Purcell-Sherland. It's 19 past five, Nathan Rarity, and you're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. Coming up on the programme, the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson, talks. Uh, he's going to talk about the Rotorua's dismal emergency housing that we saw. And also regional council workers say it's unfair that they earn less than their city-based counterparts doing the same job. Let's visualise something here. Imagine that you're on a mountain bike and you're zooming downhill at high speed. And for enthusiasts, the sport is an exhilarating way to enjoy the outdoors. But for many people living with a disability, the experience has been out of reach. 
But now that's changing, the ABC's Angus Randall reports. Renee Junger had spent every spare moment on a BMX bike since she was five years old. But after her accident at the age of 20, she thought she'd never ride again. It was actually on a mountain bike, um, 2006 at the Mountain Bike World Championships in Rotorua. Got a bit too keen, overshot a jump and yeah, fell on my head and sustained a spinal cord injury. So I didn't ride any kind of bikes up until probably two, three years ago um, when I got my adaptive mountain bike. An adaptive mountain bike looks a bit like a tricycle with two wheels at the front and one at the back. The rider is strapped in and uses their hands to turn the pedals with a little help from an electric motor. I guess it's like riding a bike, it just comes naturally back and yeah, all the, all the fun and adrenaline and yeah, it's been great. Like um, my partner rides and he used to just take off on the weekend and go riding and never see him and now we can go riding together. And Renee's brother Sam Howie is thrilled to see his sister back in the saddle. Oh, it is such a great thing. We grew up riding together so it's where we're meant to be. It's been a long time in between her riding so it's just, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, just pumped up, stoked for her. Renee Junger has been borrowing an adaptive bike from Paralympic cyclist Grant Allen. Back in 2011, I was riding mountain bikes normally, just like as an able-bodied person. I had a pretty big crash, um, suffered a spinal cord injury, um, became a paraplegic as a result. Yeah, I guess, you know, it's a life-changing sort of thing, but I guess, like, right away, I was, like, pretty much just, like, I need to just get back on with life and, you know, get back to, you know, doing things that I would normally do and I guess, you know, stay positive. There's no point being stale about it. It's just, you know, I'm not dead. Over the weekend, he competed in Australia's first adaptive downhill race in Adelaide South. Renee and Grant were the only competitors, but they hope to see more entrants at the national championships early next year. I've missed it, you know, like so much. Like, it's just the sort of thing that's, you know, like ingrained into my memory. And, you know, like I watch videos of other people riding like a two-wheel bike and just think, like, I know that feeling, you know. Like, you know, if I could just, like, you know, click my fingers and, you know, like get back onto a bike, I could do that, you know, like just from muscle memory alone kind of thing, you know. And it's, it's definitely that, like getting back onto this bike. It's just like, you know, all that stuff sort of, you know, like comes back to life. The downhill tracks need to be adjusted to fit the wider base of the three-wheelers, but they're still intense, and Grant is one of the few brave enough to take on a jumps course. He hopes Australia can be a leader in adaptive mountain biking. I was only speaking to a lovely lady yesterday who has a son that lives with a disability, and she was just mentioning, you know, like around her son and just opportunities for him and things like that, and talking to someone like that is just like, you know, like... Her son being able to see what I do with this is the future. I can see it sort of being the thing where there's, you know, an adaptive downhill, an adaptive cross-country racing, you know, like at that highest level, you know, and it'd be cool to see that, you know, 10 years' time, Brisbane 2032, right? It's Paralympic cyclist Grant Allen ending that report from Angus Randall. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. It's the day of our life that we like to call the 8th of September. On this day in 1906 was the date of New Zealand's first fatal car accident. Uh, Janet Makel became the first person in New Zealand uh, to be killed in a car accident. She was driving her 8 horsepower car and it went over the bank on a, on a family farm. So that was sad on this day in 1906. I'm going to get a bit artsy uh, on the others. I'm going to flip this round a bit. A scary movie came out this day in 1960. It was the official release of Alfred Hitchcock's classic thriller, Psycho. The, the, the movie studio Paramount said, we well, don't no, no, fun that, it looks awful. 
So he funded it himself. Alfred Hitchcock financed it himself for 60% ownership in the film, and what a great gamble that turned out to be. He produced it on a budget of just $800,000. The film made $32 million in the movies when it came out, so he did all right out of that. Now, he saved a whole lot of money. He filmed it in black and white. That was actually just to save money. It wasn't stylistic at all. Uh, And he actually filmed it in a television studio too, so breaking all the rules of film. Uh, He used chocolate syrup for the blood swirling down the drain in the famous shower scene. And when Janet Leigh's character uh, flushes her note down the toilet, that made history because it was the first time a toilet was shown flushing in US cinema. Maybe that's what got him to the 32 million. I don't know, but good gamble there from uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And it is, it's it's, ugh, it's a yucky movie. This music freaks me out. On this day in 1966, season one of Star Trek uh, premiered on NBC TV. It started out rating really well and it just dived and dived in the ratings. They were going to lose it, but it got saved in season two. There was a huge letter writing campaign uh, and they shifted it to Friday nights and then it took off. So uh, as you know, the, the rest is history. And on this day in 1974, uh, I just love getting to say Evil Can Evil. Evil Knievel. We need a good modern name like Evil Knievel. He uh, tried to jump the Snake River Canyon in a steam-powered rocket motorcycle, uh, which is very steampunk of him, but the parachute uh, deployed just before the launch, which meant the jump failed and he landed at the bottom of the canyon, suffering only minor injuries, because that's when stuntman was stuntman, and that is uh, what happened on this day of our life, the 8th of September. The best things in life are free. And give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Joining us now from the business team is Mr. Nicholas Pointing. Kia ora, sir. How are you? I am well, thank you. Um, why has the warehouse been pinged by the Commerce Commission? What did they do? This was for misleading promotions about. You're aware of the website One Day, One Day, like One Day Sales? It's, oh, it's like a sale, and it's, but it's only for the. Yeah, for the it, One Day. <laughs> see, One Day was sort of merged into the warehouse's online sort of retail platform called The Market. Oh. And the. <laughs> The warehouse has been pinged by the Commerce Commission. Actually, uh, was fined $840,000 in the Auckland District Court for misleading promotions because um, promoted its daily deals claiming they were for today only, despite the fact that they are often rolled for consecutive days. And the Commission says the online store was also programmed to progressively reduce the quantity of stock displayed. People, you know, I went through a phase maybe coming out of high school where yeah. I had my own money and I was obsessed with deals. Like, I checked yeah. one day deals. Well, good. Every, You're being sensible. Every yeah. single day. Yeah. Um, and But they used to have this counter to show how much stock was of, was was left. And that combined with the timer counting down, uh. you were literally shaking in your boots. So like it's, I saying need to, to, it's saying to you, hurry, hurry, there's only five. Hurry, there's only four. Well, hurry. that was... That wasn't correct. Um, right. It was programmed to track down, even though that there might be plenty of stuff in the warehouse out the back. Mm. And the Commerce Commission, essentially, that's why they filed these charges. Uh, the, 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 the judge, when he handed out the sentence, said, look, this was, this was inaccurate. You would never see this in a retail store. This went on for far too long. That's why the fine is off the size. There, there used to be, you'd be too young for this, there used to be this thing, the Home Shopping Network, and there were these people that would yell at you and go do this, and that 
that's what they would do as well. They'd be showing you some, I don't know, you know those ladder with 59 million uses oh, and go, yeah. oh, there's only 17, you better hurry, there's only this. And they would just talk and talk and talk. They were told to say that as well to try and increase that pressure. So it's almost like a sales technique uh, that's yeah, carried through. Absolutely. You combine the two, you're running out of time and you're running out of stock. Yeah. Boom, you're hitting a sweet spot right there that you're hopefully going to push people into making that transaction. Yeah. I see a big mall sold in Christchurch too. What? Which is, I mean, malls. Are we going to have them much longer? That's the question I want. That's that's the question that's always been on my mind. I went to one over the weekend. I got to say, it was an amazing experience because I very rarely ever go yeah. to the mall. Yeah. But I could. I was so surprised by how many people were just there, just hanging around. But yeah, especially in outer suburbs in Auckland, when I visit malls there, they do seem a bit lifeless. Mm. The mall that's been sold is Northlands Mall in Papanui in Christchurch for one hundred and sixty million dollars, sold to Queenstown-based. MP Holdings 5. It's uh, managed by McCursey Property. And uh, that, that that is for one of Christchurch's busiest shopping centres. But it raised a question because in America, you know, the rise of e-commerce over there, Amazon, mm. huge, right? Mm. Uh, you've got the, the likes of Target, things like Target, Walmart. You know, the mall in America is dying. And I feel like a lot of the consumer trends that are happening, they tend to start there. And yeah. we tend to catch it sort of five or seven years later before they slowly make it. But I don't know, maybe it's within our culture. We do quite like malls. I know Kiwi Property Group is trying to build uh, long-term accommodation or apartments within, right within its we, malls. So we, we had a mall in Alberta that used to be the biggest in the world. It's called the West Edmonton Mall. That, that had uh, a hotel in it, which was huge. It had roller coasters in it. Mm. It had a small zoo. It had a dolphin show. It had an ice rink. It had all that stuff in it. And, and, and it was just massive. And it, it's crazy to think now that even they are starting to, to drop away. Well, yeah, because I guess at the time that was the that was a capitalist dream yeah. to create an environment where everywhere you can go, you can buy. Yeah. But there's also no reason for you to ever leave. You know, yeah. so you put all the amenities it's in the hotel there. California. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is. It is. It's the it's the capitalist dream prison. It is cool. Hey, thank you uh, very much. Yeah, what's going to happen? See them dear mall. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report this morning at ten to seven. Let's see what your New Zealand dollar can buy you around the world. It can buy you 60.5 US cents, 89.7 Australian ones, uh, 60.6 Euro cents, 52.6 British pence, 4.22 yuan, 87.2 Japanese yen, and if you're uh, trying to buy some Canadian dollars or loonies, uh, that'll buy you 79.6 Canadian cents, so not quite enough for that. Well, uh, we head towards 6 o'clock, you're listening to First Up here in RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarity, in the build-up to Aotearoa's celebration of Tuiki o Te Reo Māori next week. An impressive lineup of Māori thought leaders will be sharing their journey with the real this Rāmere, which is on Friday. So, along with the likes of The Casketeers, a news presenter Orini Kaipara, uh, musicians Moana Maniapoto and Rob Ruha, rugby legend Matua Parkinson is going to be sharing his experience with Te Māori. So, uh, spoke to him and I asked him to explain what the M9 event is. For me, it's about learning my journey through learning Te reo. As a young boy with my brothers, my two kanas and my, my two and my sisters, we learnt the real from our father. But unfortunately, um, Nate, like a lot of people, my dad thought and was strapped at school for talking and speaking to real. So he thought there wasn't an avenue for us when we were young. So he didn't speak a lot, but we saw him on the Morai speaking beautifully. This is about, for me, my journey in the real. So I've gone back to Kura, I've gone back to Waikato University. Now, keeping in mind, School wasn't a happy place for me when you 
when you're not a good learner, because I didn't learn the traditional way in regards to learning at school, because I was, mm. I've only just been diagnosed as being dyslexic. Wow. So at school wasn't a happy place. So going back to Waikato University to learn te reo Māori was a big, scary thing for me. So I'm still there now. And it's about just telling my journey to people out there in regards to placing some importance on te reo Māori into my, the context of my sporting career because there wasn't a lot of that. Now there is. There's a lot more in, in rugby. Mm. But, yeah, just letting people know and, and talking to people about my journey. And, yeah, it's going to be good. But letting people know that you can learn with disabilities, I just learned differently, and I've only just worked that out. So after being tested and diagnosed and having a bit of a laugh about it, Wow, that, mate, that's but that's such a huge thing to take on, especially because if I think of a university, I think you got to do heaps of reading. You know, you got to get that in. So that's a that's a massive. I mean, you used to run into fully grown men who were trying to hurt you, but I mean, this has got to be quite as um, this is pretty daunting as well, would it not? But it's far more daunting than playing a physical game of rugby. You know, it's using my brain, my matauranga, and uh, like. I've, I've built up coping mechanisms over the years on how to get out of doing things like that so I don't get embarrassed. But this is putting myself right back in that situation. So it, it was about being just honest with my kayako and, you know, having some systems and some structures in place where I can learn. I would translate from te reo Pākehā into te reo Māori and then from te reo Māori into uh, hieroglyphics. So that's how I learned pictures. So I call them the Māori glyphics. So, <laughs> you know, like uh, um, in the Egyptian, you know, caves, those those hieroglyphic stuff. So I draw little pictures of little men and pointing arrows and capitals with circles around them and all of that. Mats, it's interesting you talk about your use of hieroglyphics because um, I think I'd spoken to you when you'd come back from Egypt. You've been doing some mining over there. So was that a little bit of inspiration? Yeah, yeah, yeah it actually was. But I, I looked at that and I could see the story. You know, I could tell this. You could quite easily, for me, it was quite easy to see the story of the hieroglyphics. It was cool. It was cool. And I just, yeah, I was lucky to be able to transplant that into multiglyphics. What's, I mean, it's amazing to do, but if you think about it, like, you know, Moko tells stories, all our carvings and the Whatanui tell stories and that as well. So it, it, it was a language that wasn't really a written language, it was an oral language. So it, it sits within it, continues. And your father's story is, is very similar to mine because my father was caned, you know, for, for speaking his language. Plus, he was left handed, so he had yeah. a ter- terrible, terrible time at school as well. So, I mean, I guess, is, is this why for you, it's, yeah. I guess, it's more personal to that this is important? Yeah, yeah, yep, and then, yeah, it, it is, it is, uh, but then also, if you've been on Māori television, you go to situations where people expect or think, or they know your papa, or they know your whakapapa, they go, oh, now that boy can call it all. You get, you get put in situations where you have to, might have to say a mihi, or uh, get up and have a fight call it all. And when you can't, or you sit down next to a kaumatu or a kui and they kōrero i te reo Māori to you and you can't even answer back, and the look on their face is like, eki, I watched this follow on television, but he can't even kōrero, what's going on? Because they don't know the television world. So it's a, a look of disappointment, so it's a, it's a little bit frustrating. <laughs> so I'm getting into those spaces now, getting a little bit older, still denying it, but getting a little bit older, <laughs> and also pass it on to my tamariki, my three boys, so... If they need to be able to stand and court it, or they can do that quite adequately. 
It's Matua Parkinson, and that M9 event uh, is um, tomorrow. That's Friday the 9th there at the Kiritakanoa Theatre, which is at the Altea Centre. We're on our way to 6 o'clock. I'd really like, if you can, just uh, send me some of these energy-saving tips or heat-saving tips, ye oldy ones too. The, the older the better is good. Uh, send them in here to First Up on RNZ National. 2101 is a good way to text. So still to come between now and 6, uh, we're going to ask the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson if he feels the government should apologise to the to the uh, women wrongly accused of breaking lockdown rules and plunging Northland into lockdown. And regional council workers, you're going to hear from them because they say they're sick of being paid less because they don't live in the big city. <laughs> Professionals of Morning Reporter up after six. And with a quick preview of what is happening on the flagship show, it is Susie Ferguson who's with me now. Kia ora, how are you? Kia ora, I'm well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm getting there. It's good, I'm back. How's the voice? Uh, better Dean Gargle. I love it. Is, is it, miracle working? It is, it is miracle working. I hope yep. I'm allowed to say that without, you know, compromising well, anything. Yeah, but look, it yeah. worked, you know. I tried the salt, tried the uh, the everything Ooh. else. That was the one that, yeah, the salt. Uh, I know, that was the Ooh. one that worked for me. So. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're better and I'm glad you're sounding like yourself again, which is always lovely. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, the situation with Ukraine, with a New Zealand medic who's back from the front lines there is warning health workers not to join the war unless they're actually trained to work in conflict zones. Hmm. The full story there coming up just after seven o'clock. Also, COVID case numbers and hospitalisations at the lowest level since February. Have a bit of a discussion around that. Uh, Also, the families of those killed in that Saskatchewan mass stabbing speak out. There's still one suspect on the run there. We'll bring you the very latest. And some good news. The Ames Games are back for kids after it's two exciting. year hiatus. It's exciting. It? Yeah, yeah. I the know. kids at our school are very, very happy to be heading off there. And there's all sorts of netball teams and, you know, hockey and everything. It's nice. It's cool, too, to see the variety of sports that they're doing now. It's wonderful. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. fantastic. And we'll have a bit of a... A uh, bit of a look at that. It's all coming up after six. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, look, for the first time, union members at three councils at the top of the South Island, they're going to join forces as they enter collective agreement negotiations. Now, the workers there say that they've had enough of being paid sunshine wages, which is a supposed trade-off for living in the regions. But the chief executive of one of the councils says the joint approach may draw out negotiation process while workers need extra money in their pockets now. Tom Taylor has the story. New ducks and old ducks must unite under a new banner. And I thought perhaps something like this. Union members at three councils at the top of the South Island are likening themselves to Zero to Hero hockey team the Mighty Ducks, with a bid to fly together under the same banner in their latest collective agreement negotiations. In the past, members of the Public Service Association, or PSA, have negotiated their agreements with individual councils. But ahead of this round of negotiations, members at Nelson City Council and Tasman and Marlborough District Councils voted in favour of a multi-employer collective agreement, or MECA, in the hope that it would bring more uniformity to the paying conditions at each of the councils. Rob Simons, a PSA delegate and biosecurity officer at Marlborough District Council, says with cost of living pressures rising, local government jobs haven't kept up with their counterparts in the private sector. The salaries don't quite match up. So that has led to some attrition of staff. We've lost staff to other organisations. 
And what that has actually done is it's actually reduced um, certain skill sets uh, within the organisation. From what I've seen, uh, that has resulted in other staff having to pick up those skill sets. He says staff members' additional responsibilities haven't been reflected in their pay. Historically, uh, regional councils have offered great employment packages, uh, good benefits, and, and historically it's not always been about the money. But I think times have changed and you know, people out there are hurting and uh, some people would say we're the living uh, or the working poor. So something does need to change and people are due for uh, a lift in their salary. Nelson City Council Administrator and PSA Delegate Jane Moran says she and her husband both took pay cuts when moving from Canterbury to Nelson. The median weekly wage and salary income for households in Tasman, Nelson, Marlborough and West Coast is about 14% less than the national median, according to stats. It's Ms Moran's hope that the Mecca will help to lift these so-called sunshine wages. It was more expensive for us to buy a property here than it was in Canterbury. I was like, why are the wages less? But there seemed to be a, we're in the region, so we don't pay as much mentality. And I think that that needs to change because as the world is changing and we're evolving and we can work from anywhere we should be looking at a more sustainable model. PSA union organiser Ian Hoffman says that as the most recent agreements approach their expiry date, several inconsistencies across the three councils shone through, including the topic of pandemic-related leave. We realised quite quickly that each council had a different COVID leave policy. That seemed really strange. Like, why would council staff in Nelson have a different policy from staff at Tasman just down the road? The PSA also represents many health workers across New Zealand and often negotiates multi-employer collective agreements so that the same roles have the same conditions, no matter where the worker lives. Mr Hoffman says there is no reason why the same approach could not work across multiple councils. It didn't make sense to us that we'd be so siloed in the local government sector. And it also seemed to us that we're in a really weak position. So we thought, well, we're stronger together. Let's come together and form this mecca. On the other side of the table, Marlborough District Council Chief Executive Mark Wheeler says that council workers' remuneration has always kept up with the cost of living, apart from one year where staff agrees to a pay freeze in the face of COVID. However, he says this year that will be more challenging. We all know that you know inflation is uh, hitting highs it hasn't hit for some years. Um, and that's going to be challenging in terms of council budgets and, and the effects on ratepayers. But of course, that's yet to be negotiated, so we'll just have to work through that. But historically, we we believe we've paid, you know, fairly, and we also offer a whole lot of benefits to staff. Mr. Wheeler says Marlborough has never had an issue with staff recruitment and retention, although this too has become more challenging in recent years, with central government competing for staff to deal with a raft of reforms. He says although the council has previously based its pay scales on local government market rates, it is looking to move to the general market to keep up with the competition. However, he says any increase in staff pay needs to be weighed up against the council's responsibility for ratepayers' money, and there is a possibility that having to negotiate across three councils will drag out the process. Staff will get back pays, but you know, when your costs are going up, you want the money now, don't you really? <laughs> I genuinely would like to be settling this early, but having said that, uh, we have to be prudential with our ratepayer funds. But if deemed a success, the PSA could look to use its flying together approach to help secure better pay and conditions for more council workers across New Zealand. 14 PSA gathered from all across the top of the South. We're going to stick together. You know why? Because we are ducks, and ducks fly together. That's right, Jan.
Well, three women who triggered an 11-day lockdown in Northland last October did not mislead authorities when they travelled to uh, their up from Auckland, as was alleged. A uh, police report released yesterday shows that while their application to cross the border was rejected by one government department, it was then approved by another. The Prime Minister had described the women as irresponsible and dangerous and extraordinarily frustrating. Uh, I asked the Deputy Prime Minister Grant Robertson if he thought that was fair. Obviously, people who have COVID and that travel, that is, was a particular risk and a particular danger. What obviously has now come clear and was actually clear in October last year is that they were granted their applications in error by the Ministry of Social Development. That error was eventually discovered, obviously, and the applications were revoked, but by then it was too late. I think the most important thing to remember here is that the reason that Northland went into lockdown was because Delta was circulating. And even though we now, when we did in mid-October last year, have information that indicated that these people were granted an application, it was still the right decision, in my view, to go into lockdown. But quite clearly, there were process issues within uh, the granting of their exemptions. So if you knew last October, why, why did it take nearly a year for the rest of us to find out these women had been unfairly treated? Well, actually, it was talked about at the time. In fact, I believe there was a morning report story um, on it on the 13th of October, and the, the National Party actually put out a press release that day as well around the fact that there had been this error. So it was discussed at the time. I do respect what you've said, that there were allegations swirling around, as you say, um, Winston Peters, who obviously wasn't part of the government by that stage. He was making those allegations. But, you know, there was a lot of different and conflicting information. Eventually, it did emerge that they had been granted their exemptions. That was an error. That error was rectified, but obviously by then they had been in the region. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems, though, that you know, they were much maligned around the country, yeah. country and that, and that, that's come from a government mistake, really, hasn't it? I mean, the mistake was made, yes, in the processing of the application, but I don't think it was government people who were making the allegations around them being sex workers and so on that came from outside. In the end, what was important was that we looked after the safety of Northlanders. You know, Northland had one of the lower vaccination rates, and I do recall the decision at the time to go into Level 3 for Auckland was one where we were very concerned that we had populations who should Delta circulate further in the region would have been really badly affected. So I think the decision was the right one. The circumstances by which the people got who had COVID got into Northland is one uh, where there was a clerical error, and it was acknowledged in October last year. Okay. Well, I mean, one of them contacted a radio station today. She wants an apology. Will she get one? Look, you know, I don't know that that is on the cards. I think there was a mistake made. You would need to talk to the Minister of Social Development about what was communicated to them at the time. In terms of those comments that were made about what their occupation was, I think the people who made those comments are the ones that need to think about whether they would want to apologise for that. And obviously that's people who aren't in the government anymore, so you'd need to talk to them directly. Yeah. Okay, so last Sunday TVNZ, uh, their expose on the uh, state of emergency housing in Rotorua was really shocking and and horrible to see. I see that uh, Te Pāti Māori... National, of course, calling for an inquiry as well. And, and Rotorua locals feel that that situation is, is getting out of hand. And I was thinking, how did it get so bad? Because I know one of them, I think Tiny Dean, who's involved there, he was nominated for New Zealander of the Year in the Kiwi Bank thing. So how did things get so bad here? Is no one checking up on the providers? Oh, no, the, the providers are under constant um, observation for their work. And we are there.
have been allegations made, they've been investigated. Agencies have always put the safety of the people who are in um, emergency housing as their priority and followed up any queries. And I know that there were some last year and they were pursued and, and in fact even handed over to the police and the police looked and said that they didn't have any concerns. So we will always make sure that we follow up on those complaints if they're made. But you know, we also have to remember we're talking about in 2021 anyway, I think just over a thousand people um, going um, into emergency housing in the Rotorua area. Mm. It is a lot of people. The alternative is that these people would be in even less satisfactory housing conditions such as cars and so on and an overcrowded um, other housing. So, you know, it's a very challenging and a very difficult environment. We must make sure everyone who's there is safe and we'll keep following up any complaints that are made. Yeah, I think it hurt lots of us to see people having to live like that, like fellow Kiwis. So, so there, there will be an inquiry into that. Well, I, I don't know that there, you know, there is a particular reason for a one-off inquiry here. Although I do recognise that opposition parties have gone to the Auditor General, and it'll be up to the Auditor General to decide whether he thinks there should be an investigation. He's, he's independent in that regard. What we've got to do is just make sure that we are. Are protecting the safety of the people who are there and following up every single complaint and investigating it and working with the providers to make sure that, you know, that, that there is best practice there. And, you know, these are accredited providers. Um, there are systems, particularly for security firms, that they need and rules and criteria that they need to uphold. So we've got to make sure that they're doing that. I think if we do take a step back, though, Nathan, I mean, we have a long-term housing issue in Rotorua. And when we came in office in to office in 2017, there'd been, you know, there were 44 fewer state houses, public house, housing places in Rotorua than when the previous national government had started. You know, so not only did they not build extra, they actually reduced the number. We've got around 300 under construction. We've got just approved funding for the infrastructure for 3,000 more houses, not just public houses in Rotorua. So we are trying to get on with getting to the root cause of the problem. In the meantime, emergency housing is definitely better than being in a car or other unsatisfactory conditions. We've just got to make sure that emergency housing system works properly. Yeah, I just hope that in six months, if if they go back, you know, TVNZ, mm. they, they find the conditions are better. So also thinking too about the motel owners too, because we saw they're allegedly charging excess fees to emergency housing residents, which is taxpayer money. Like they're, they're, mm. they're taking money out of my pocket to, to charge these fees. Those motel owners doing that, is there a course of action for that? And is there a justification for them charging those excess fees? Yeah, look, and that's something I know that the officials are looking very closely at. You know, as you say, there's been a significant amount of taxpayer resource gone into this. That's because we do want to make sure that people are safe and sound. And there's absolutely no justification for anyone to be exploiting anyone in this situation. So if that went beyond what was reasonable, I would fully expect that those providers would be chased up. I don't have any evidence in front of me to indicate that. But if people have got that, then we need to look at it. Just finally, there's a new leader in the United Kingdom. Liz Truss is the new Prime Minister there. I know she cut us a pretty sweet trade, uh, free trade agreement when she was Foreign Minister. I know that their farmers weren't celebrating like ours were. Now that she's the Prime Minister, what does that mean for us as far as more trade agreements go? And do you is there concern that maybe that noise from the UK farmers might make her change or flip-flop on that? Well, certainly the 
experience of my colleagues who've worked with Liz Truss has been very, very positive when it comes to trade agreements. You know, both Damon O'Connor and David Parker have, have worked with her and, and credit her with being a, a force for pushing for in New Zealand-UK free trade agreement. And so on the basis of that, I wouldn't have any concerns. There is still a little bit of work to do on the making sure that all the I's get dotted and T's get crossed to make sure we can get that implemented as soon as possible. And we would be certainly looking to the, the Liz Truss-led government as one that would be positive towards that. Beyond that, you know, New Zealand has a good relationship with the UK. And one of the things you learn when you're in, in politics is that it doesn't matter what party you're from, um, two countries need to work together uh, to achieve good things for our people. And I'm sure we'll be able to do that with, with her government. That's the Deputy Prime Minister, Grant Robertson. Well, that is uh, the uh, the end of the episode for this morning. Thank you very much uh, for being here uh, today. Uh, finally, some of your feedback this morning. Jeff in Christchurch says, Boris Johnson's hint of a possible return shows he's still living in the bozone layer. There we are. Thank you, Jeff. Always uh, appreciate his. Now, um, I was asking beforehand as well. In fact, here's one from Peter off the email. Why should Robertson apologise? She had COVID. More delusional nonsense from RNZ. Sick of the whinging. That's from Peter. Uh, and I was asking before as well, what are your energy-saving tips? Ye oldie ones. Here's one. Uh, door draft stoppers, very handy to keep in the heat. Yes, they are. Uh, take a warm shower, but don't wet your hair. Okay. Uh, John in Queenstown says, my energy-saving saving tip, Nathan, is don't fly anywhere. Because then if you don't get on the plane, it means, oh, no, that's right, the takeoff anyway. Uh, how does that work? John from Queenstown. And Joe the Roaster, there's a great heating uh, from the mountains of Bolivia. Guinea pigs are a delicacy eaten for breakfast. Some people keep their guinea pigs under the bed. There we go. That uh, keeps them a bit warm and they can just select the fattest one for breakfast. Do you know, my friend is married to a Peruvian woman and he told me that, that yeah, it's what they do. They, they pack it in mud and then they cook it in like a sort of like an umu or a hangi, just an outdoory one, and then you just get it and you crack the clay in half and open it up and there's your guinea pig in there. I don't know if I'm that, that keen to have a go at that, but uh, hey, that's... Apparently it's good enough. People have been eating that for hundreds of years. So maybe next time I'll go to the pet shop, I'll go, hmm. Hey, uh, get in touch with us anytime you like on Twitter at, at FirstUpRNZ. Morning Report is next with Susie and Corin. From all of us here at First Up, have yourselves a wonderful day and we'll be back in your ears. A ah, poor.